It is all about Jesus, isn't it? So thankful for, for Him today. You know, our topic today we're studying, I've entitled, Buried Alive. Probably most of us haven't ever been buried alive. In fact, the closest I've ever come to being buried alive is no doubt at the beach. Have you ever been at the beach and dug a big hole and uh, tried to cover yourself up with uh, sand? Have you ever done that? Um, I remember as a teenager doing that, and, and we, would, we would have a lot of fun uh, making sculptures of, in, above our friends, you know, making them look like Arnold Schwarzenegger laying there in the sand. Um, it was a lot of fun just to do different things. Um, the problem is that if you do that when the tide is coming in, um, you realize that while it's fairly easy to get sand on top of you and get into that hole, it's not so easy to get out of that hole in short order. And a couple summers ago, I had that experience. Um, a big wave came unexpectedly while I was buried in the sand with my nephew. Much to his delight, um, I got a wave crashing over my head. It's a very helpless feeling. Of course, my niece wanted to experience it as well, so we had to bury her. Now, this was all fun and good, but a number of years ago, this was an actual fear that many people had, the fear of being buried while they were still alive. As medical science was in its infancy, and as people were beginning to understand that, in fact, you could be unconscious and still alive, and you could be revived through, uh, you know, through CPR and other methods, even if you had drowned, they began realizing that people were being buried who weren't really ready to be buried. They weren't dead at all. And uh, this book was written back at the, near the turn of the uh, century, the 20th century. It's now been reprinted. If you're interested in getting a copy, there's a new version that's been reprinted. It's not your typical bedtime reading that you would want to, to read about. Um, but it's very interesting nonetheless. And um, it's written by a number of people um, uh, who had various involvement with this idea of being buried alive. Walter Hadwin lived from 1854 to 1932. He was a doctor and a pharmaceutical chemist. He was also a member of the London Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial. Uh, founded in 1896. William Tebb, another author, lived from 1830 to 1917. He was a British businessman and wide-ranging social reformer. He co-founded the London Association for, for the Prevention of Premature Burial. And the last author here, Edward Perry Vollum, was a doctor and was almost buried alive. He actually didn't die until 1902 when he was actually buried, but earlier than that, in an earliest experience, in fact, in the foreword to the book, it reads this way, Dr. Volum first became interested in the important question of premature burial in consequence of his own very narrow escape from live sepulture, having been pronounced dead from drowning and prepared for interment when consciousness happily returned sponta uh, spontaneously. And so, uh, Dr. Volum had a particular reason to want to write a book called Premature Burial and How to Avoid It. Now, I'm thankful for the advances in medical science that we've seen since then, aren't you? Um, to me, it doesn't sound like a very, um, uh, very positive thing to be buried alive. But yet, 
what we're going to explore in the Bible today is the amazing truth that there's a positive aspect to being buried alive. And that's uh, found in our scripture in Romans chapter 6, if you'll turn with me there again. And today we're going to be looking at a lot of scriptures, a lot of texts. So you're welcome to follow along, but it's going to be a, a little different than my typical message. We're going to be looking at a lot of passages, so I've put most of them on the screen where you can follow along there as well. And Romans chapter 6 Paul writes, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul here puts a very positive spin on being buried alive, doesn't he? Paul says, look, there's an aspect, there's a spiritual sense in which we ought to be buried. Buried while we're yet living. Buried while we're still alive. And it's a spiritual burial. Jesus was literally buried, right? He went into the grave for us. But he also came out of the grave. And as we are spiritually buried, our old man dies so that the new man can rise to walk in newness of life. Paul loved this theme. He, he, in fact, figured you ought to be buried on a regular basis. He even writes that I die daily, he said, right? is a, a constant renewal of that death and resurrection with Jesus. Coming, going into the water symbolizes the death of the old man, and coming out of the water symbolizes the, the, uh, the uh, resurrection of the new man. I'm talking about the Christian belief and Christian practice of baptism. Now, our, Baptist, our baptism um, understanding, Christian baptism, had its origin with John the Baptist, who was a rugged prophet uh, who appeared in the wilderness of Judea boldly preaching repentance. Remember, he was the forerunner of the Messiah. Crowds of people gathered to listen to him. In fact, it reads in Matthew 3, verse 5, then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. You see, John the Baptist came onto the scene preaching repentance and preaching baptism. And there was somebody who heard about him. There was somebody who heard that John was there and inviting people to a revival and a reformation, including a washing away of their sins symbolized by baptism. Jesus, over in Nazareth, working in the carpenter's shop, he heard of John the Baptist, and he made his way also to the Jordan River. You remember the story, right? And when John caught sight of Jesus... You remember when John caught sight of Jesus, he recognized in his cousin, Jesus, somebody that was much more important spiritually than he was. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus is pointed to by John, and John identifies him as the one who takes away the sin of the world. John recognized that those sacrificial lambs that had been offered day by day, year by year in the sanctuary service, they themselves could not take away sin. The physical ceremonies that we might observe, they only point to a spiritual reality. Those lambs pointed forward to Jesus, the true Lamb of God, who could take away the sin of the world. And so Jesus comes to John, and Jesus asks John to be baptized. Can, this, can you imagine the scene? Here you are, just announcing that this is the one 
who we've waited for, the one who is going to himself be our sin bearer, the one who is the sacrifice, the Messiah, the one who can take away the sins of the world. And then you have that one whom you have just introduced coming to you, if you were John, and asking to be baptized. Can you imagine? And I can only imagine what John was thinking and feeling when Jesus said to him, he says, I need to be baptized by you, Matthew 3, verse 14. Now, this was a, a strange request because John was preaching repentance, right? Arise, be baptized for the washing away of your sins. Now, why would Jesus need to be baptized? If Jesus is the sent promised one, Jesus has no sins that need to be washed away, right? And so John gets into a little bit of a, an argument with Jesus. In fact, saying, oh, I'm not going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus responds, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus, Jesus, our wonderful Savior, is not only our substitute dying in our place on the cross, Jesus is also our example, giving us an example of a life that we can live and that we should live. He, he insisted on being baptized as an example for us. He wanted to identify with the life that we have to live. He wanted to leave a perfect example for us to follow. And so John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, burying Him under the water and bringing Him back up again. The Bible talks about it. It says, and as soon as Jesus was baptized, He went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. You see what happens? The Bible says that Jesus came up out of the water, and at that moment the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. And this marked the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, the voice from heaven says, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Here in the baptism of Jesus, you find the complete Godhead represented, don't you? You have the Son being baptized by John in the Jordan River. You have the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, visible form of a dove, coming down and anointing Jesus. And you also have the voice of the Father speaking from heaven, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus comes up out of the water, no longer to go back to His carpenter shop in Nazareth. Nothing wrong with working in a carpenter shop. But now he had a special work to do. He had become anointed as the Messiah. The Messiah from the Hebrew root comes to us, and it means the anointed one, similar to Christ in the Greek, um, the anointed one. And as Jesus walked up out of the water and stood with dripping clothes on the muddy banks of Jordan, God recognized him as the Messiah, the anointed one. In fact, this marks the beginning of his public ministry as the Messiah. Peter would later say in his sermon in Acts how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And so Jesus began his ministry here at his baptism, and he himself began teaching also that people should begin their spiritual lives with baptism as well. We find in John chapter 4 and verse 1 and, and, and verse 2, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but His disciples. You see, evidently, heaven approved of this practice. Jesus approved of this practice, and His disciples were baptizing. Before He would leave, He would tell 
his followers. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The New Testament church obediently followed Jesus' instructions. And sometimes the record records that even thousands were baptized in a single day. But what mode of baptism, what type of baptism did Jesus' followers practice after he returned from he to heaven? And we would assume that they would follow Jesus' example. Um, that's an assumption, but we're going to look in the Bible, we're going to look in the Bible record, and we're going to discover what the Bible teaches about baptism. In fact, Paul would later write, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, meaning that there's only one true way. There's only one true Savior, isn't there? There's only one true faith and one true baptism. And the, the, the book of Acts records one very detailed account of baptism, and this was soon after Jesus left this earth. It's recorded in the first uh, part of the book of Acts, and it's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember the story how Philip was um, sent to walk along the dusty road to Gaza? And as he was walking there, he saw the Ethiopian treasure of Queen Candace, a high-ranking official, a very important man who had been in Jerusalem worshiping. He had charge of all of the treasury of the Queen of Ethiopia at that time, a very uh, influential country. He had come to, to Jerusalem and worship, and now he's on his way home. He's reading that Isaiah scroll and having trouble understanding what the scroll is meaning, what's written in it. And so Philip sees him, he runs over, and he asks him, do you understand what you are reading? Now, how would, how would you like if you're reading, you know, and someone just comes along and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? Isn't that sort of a strange question to be asking? But this is what I call a divine appointment, and sometimes it just happens that way. Sometimes, sometimes God just puts words, the right words in, the, in, 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 our heart, in our mouths that we might say them at the right time. I'm sure you've had that experience before, and this was a divine appointment. God had placed Philip there for this purpose, and even though uh, this might be an odd question to just come to somebody you don't know and ask, when he asked it, it was apparent that God had sent him because in actuality, in actual fact, the, the Ethiopian treasurer didn't understand what he was reading. He was struggling with this Isaiah scroll. He was having a hard time understanding what was being spoken about. Um, and so the treasurer quickly replies, how can I unless someone guides me? And so he invites Philip to join him in his chariot. And as Philip sees that he's, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53, he, he recognized this is a prophecy of the Messiah. He had gone to Jerusalem. He may, I'm sure that's where he got the scroll of Isaiah. No doubt a very valuable thing to be leaving Jerusalem with. Um, but he's on his way back, and the priests hadn't explained Isaiah 53 to him, had they? Because the priests didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They were still looking for a redeemer from the Romans, not a redeemer from sin. And now Philip has the, the wonderful opportunity of explaining that very passage of Scripture and telling him the good news about Jesus. Isn't it wonderful that we have a Savior to tell others about? You know, um, a lot of people today look to be very satisfied with the lives they're living. 
But in fact, there's an emptiness. We know there's an emptiness that only Jesus can fill. And as Philip explains this to him, can, wouldn't you like to have heard that Bible study? Bumping along that dusty road in the back of a chariot. Um, Philip explaining. He had been there. He had seen Jesus. He had seen how Isaiah 53 was fulfilled. And he could explain to this treasure all about Jesus. And um, they must have talked about baptism too, evidently. Because the Bible records the, Phili- the Ethiopian saying to Philip, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? This, this man was on a mission. As he wanted to learn something spiritually, as he was being led by the Holy Spirit to understand more of Jesus, now that he understands about Jesus, he wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus' example was to begin a new life, a new ministry, a new phase through being baptized. Here is water. What prevents me? What hinders me from being baptized? He asked Philip. And so the Bible records, then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I want to ask you, friends, this morning, what about you? Do you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And so, stopping the chariot, chariot, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. You notice the similar language is similar as Jesus' baptism. Jesus went down into the water, and it says he came up out of the water. Here, the Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, they go down into the water and are baptized. It says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away, and he went on his way rejoicing. Why was he so happy? Because another person found the joy and the peace, the forgiveness, the salvation that only comes from Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. You see, that's what baptism is all about. Baptism is bearing an old life of sin and starting a new life in Christ. And clearly, immersion, baptism by immersion, is the mode of baptism that was practiced by the early Christian church. In fact, there's no evidence in the New Testament for any other type of baptism. The Greek word baptizo simply means to dip or to immerse, uh, to plunge underwater. Um, And this is common sense. I mean, Paul has used the, the, the symbol of burial to represent, to describe baptism, right? To be buried. And what do we do when we bury somebody? Do we, do, we, do we spray them with some water or some dirt? Do we sprinkle a little dirt on them? You know, if, if that's what it meant to be buried, we wouldn't have had those books written about premature burial and how to avoid it. If it was just about a little bit of dirt sprinkled on you, that wouldn't be a great, dreadful, fearful thing, right? No, when we bury someone, we actually put them underground and we cover them up. And that's the way, spiritually, baptism was meant to symbolize as well, an actual immersion. Baptizo means to be dipped underneath, to be placed underneath, not simply to be, uh, to be anointed or to be, to be sprinkled. And it symbolizes, it represents the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. This is what Paul says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. It's a symbol of his death for us. You see, Jesus died for whose sins? Our sins. There's no way that Jesus can save us and let us pay for our sins. Are you clear on that? 
Sin separates us from God eternally. Sin brings death. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it is not God trying to just pick some sort of an arbitrary, subjective de decision out of the air. What should I do for sin? Oh, I'll kill them. No, that's not, that's not what God is doing at all. God is not trying to, de trying to decide the punishment from, of, of sin. He is simply explaining a fact that sin brings death because sin separates us from God. God is the source of life. Are you with me on that? And so my sins, if I were to bear my sins myself, it would mean eternal separation. Praise God, I have a Savior who died in my place. And while I cannot die in my place for my own sins, what I can do is accept His death in my behalf. And when I accept my, His death in my behalf... I symbolize that. I give a public testimony to the world that I've done that by being born again of water and of the Spirit, by being baptized. Know you not that, to as, that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death. We accept His death as our own. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death. The good news is that Jesus, when He died, didn't stay in Joseph's tomb, did he? He didn't stay buried. In fact, he, uh, he, when, when we are baptized with Jesus into his death, the old man dies and stays dead, but there's a new man who rises to walk in newness of life. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Only baptism by immersion. Are you, are you following? Are you tracking with me? Only baptism by immersion, that complete burial, could adequately symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and our participation, our acceptance of it as new covenant believers in Him. Then I ask the question, how important is this New Testament rite of baptism? Is it really necessary to be baptized? Many people have asked me that through the years, and so I want to look and see what Jesus taught. There was one night a Jewish leader by the name of Nicodemus who came secretly to talk to Jesus, John chapter 3. You remember that story? It's one of our favorite passages. From it, we have John 3.16, the best-known verse in, in, uh, in the whole Bible. And as this conversation went on, uh, Nicodemus asked Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, uh, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, Jesus answered. He saw through Nicodemus's um, flatteries, and he says to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, can you imagine? I, I love the way the Bible records these stories, because... For me, because I grew up reading the Bible, I grew up in the church, and um, these stories are so familiar, sometimes I have to just take a step back and say, okay, what if I didn't know this story? What if this hap actually happened to me? Wouldn't this be a little bit of a shocking res response by Jesus? Oh, Rabbi, you know, we know you're a good man. You're a teacher sent from God. For nobody can do the things you do except he's from God. Listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. You must be born again. Do you see the surprise on Nicodemus' face? What did, where did that come from? Jesus 
Jesus didn't mess around, did he? Jesus didn't beat around the bush. Jesus went straight to the root of the problem or the root of the, the heart of the matter. And that was Nicodemus trusted in his goodness and his position and his religiosity and his tithe paying and his going to church every week. And what he needed was a new heart. He needed to be born again. Even, even somebody who's a leader in the church needs to be born again. Even your pastor needs to be born again. It's a daily experience. It's a regular occurrence. And Jesus says, don't be surprised what I'm about to tell you. You need to be born again. In fact, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, in his astonishment and surprise at the way this conversation has turned already, he says, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here, Jesus is talking about a spiritual rebirth that is witnessed to by baptism, by the symbol of baptism, water and the Spirit. No doubt Nicodemus, the proud religious leader, the Pharisee, anticipated entrance to the kingdom of God by virtue of his being a natural-born, devout Jew. They didn't have the legends about St. Peter guarding the gate back then, you understand, because Peter wasn't, well, he was around, <laughs> but he certainly wasn't considered a saint. Um, but I'm sure that if they'd had similar legends, Nicodemus would have said, or would have thought, when, they get to the, when I get to the gate of the heavenly kingdom, whoever the saint is, it probably would have been something like, um, St. Judas Maccabees or something like that. He's going to look at me and say, oh, Nicodemus, so oh, come, come right on in, Nicodemus. That's Nicodemus. But Jesus says, no, you must be born again, born again of water and of the Spirit. Jesus is telling him, there is nothing that can save us except accepting the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus in our place as our own. A complete transformation of the life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anything else would be inadequate. Notice he says about the same thing in Mark chapter 16 and verse 16 when he says, whoever believes and is what? And is baptized will be saved. It believes and is baptized, will be saved. Now, are, those, are there those who aren't able to be baptized? Yes. Some people will say, well, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized, was he? He, uh, he believed, and Jesus said he'd be saved. Um, Paul tells us that if there's first a willing heart is accepted according to what a man has, not according to what he doesn't have. In other words, if you can't do anything about it, you can't do anything about it, right? The, uh, the thief on the cross didn't have a choice to be baptized but he did have a choice to believe. And you and I have that choice as well. So the first step in preparing for Bible baptism is believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose for your salvation, that he is your Savior and your Lord. In fact, Philip emphasized this also with the Ethiopian. Remember, he says, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And so belief is the first 
prerequisite to Bible baptism. But Jesus gave His disciples further instructions. In Matthew 28 and verse 19, He says, Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave us this second step that teaching precedes baptism. Now, some people have said, well, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know anything about the Bible. You don't need to know Bible truths. All you need to know is that you're in love with Jesus and accept Him as your Savior. You can always learn all the doctrines. You can learn the teaching of the Bible afterwards. And my response to that is simply this. How much do you know about Jesus if you don't know, about, if you don't know what Jesus teaches? If you don't know what Jesus believes? Every doctrine of the Bible, rightly understood, centers in Jesus. It, re it represents who He is. It represents His character. It represents His passion for lost souls. It represents His plan. It, it's all about Jesus. And so uh, we want to know about Jesus. We want to fall in love with Jesus. But Jesus was very clear. Teach all nations. And teachings, teaching precedes baptism. He says, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's the responsibility of us as we prefer, prepare for baptism. In other words, an individual preparing for baptism uh, needs to understand Jesus' teachings and accept them. More than a mere knowledge of doctrines is needed, though, we need to also commit our lives to Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. When a person unites with Jesus, he naturally begins to live his life in a different way, Christ's way. Uh, Jesus, he, he doesn't want to do anything that Jesus wouldn't want him to do. And this change of heart we sometimes call repentance. And this is the way Peter said it, repent and be converted, therefore, uh, that your sins may be blotted out. Repentance is a recognition that our sins, my sins, my temper, my... <laughs> pride, my envy, jealousy, my sins are what took Jesus to the cross. And repentance, if I, sorrow, if I tr indeed have a sorrow for those sins, repentance will, will, will lead me to want to turn away from those sins, won't it? It'll lead me to want to walk in a different direction and ask for God's forgiveness as well as His help in walking in that different direction. So the prerequisites to salvation, in the, according to the Bible, are to accept Jesus as my Savior and Lord, to believe in Him, to understand the teachings of Jesus, to be taught, and finally, to confess my sins and to repent. By following these steps in preparation for baptism, we, God has provided a way where we can, become, we can have a new start and, make, and be made new once again, to start anew. And some people ask, well, when I'm baptized... Do I have to become a part of a church, or am I just baptized into Jesus? A good question, but when, when the, the, the multitudes came to the, the apostles on the day of Pentecost and asked to be baptized, notice what the answer was, um, or what, what took place. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44, 41, then those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Who's them being talked about? It's the church, isn't it? They were being added to the church. In fact, we studied a, a little while ago uh, from the book of, of Paul, of Paul's writings to the Corinthians. We studied about how there are different people who receive different gifts in the church, 
but we're all in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and verse 13, for by one spirit we were baptized into one what? Into one body. And what's that body that he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 12? It's the church, right? And so that is the mechanism by which, in the New Testament at least, God ordained that individuals could join the body and join the church. You see, when men and women accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're not just making a commitment in isolation. No, God has ordained, and I want you to understand this. I believe it very passionately. God has ordained that while He could save us as individuals, He has ordained that we ought to be placed upon acceptance of Him into a community of believers where we can be supported, where we can be loved, and where we can grow. Now, this doesn't mean that the church is perfect. In fact, I would argue, I would argue that a perfect church would not be a good place for a new Christian to grow. It would be discouraging. So instead of, instead of looking around and seeing all the faults in other people and saying, I don't want to be at this church, say, praise the Lord, I fit in. You know? These are people aren't perfect, but they, they love Jesus and they want to grow in Jesus. And what we ought to be, instead of trying to act like we're perfect, we ought to be, we ought to be vulnerable and broken with one another. Go back and listen to that sermon from a couple of week, weeks ago on brokenness. We ought to be broken and vulnerable with one another so that we can help each other grow. You see, even the annoying members who sit down the pew from you, don't look to your right or left, anybody, that's, not, that's proverbial, proverbially speaking, um, even the members in the church who we might become frustrated with or annoyed with, they're there for us to grow from that too. It's not, smooth seas never made a great sailor. You ever heard that expression? Smooth seas never made a great sailor. And in fact, it is in the crucible of relationships, family relationships, church family relationships, that God expects to help us grow spiritually and emotionally. And so I'm, I'm very committed to this concept of God bringing us not into just a salvation experience individually. Praise God, that is true. But He also brings us into a community whereby He will work to help us become one with Him and uh, ready for His kingdom. And so, the New Testament model gives us this example of baptism as a means of joining the church. Some people say, well, do I have to be baptized? And I tell them this, it's like a new uh, a, 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 a couple that's fallen in love. You know, I'm newly married, just over two years, still on our honeymoon, and uh, Jane and I are very much in love. But we never had this question, do we have to get married? You know, why? Because we loved one another, right? And if you love someone, getting married to them is not a chore. Young people, listen to me. If getting married seems like a chore, don't do it, okay? Don't do it. When God puts the right person in your life, it won't seem like a chore. Don't, don't, uh, don't go down that road. Uh, it's not a really a hard decision to be baptized if we're in love with Jesus. 
if we want to make a public expression of our love and commitment to Him. One time Paul and his co-worker Silas were traveling, and they went to the city of Philippi. And this afternoon we're going to have a short presentation talking about the history of Christian baptism, and I'm going to take you to some of the places where we can see evidences of early baptism. Philippi is one of those places, and I'll, I'll show you some pictures from Philippi. But um, nonetheless, uh, the Macedonian man calls Paul in his dream over to help them, and Paul and Silas head over to Philippi. The city becomes quite agitated with their preaching, so much so that a mob attacked them and tore off their clothes, and the authorities had them beaten, not realizing that Paul was a Roman citizen. They were taken to prison. It wasn't really much of a prison. It was sort of a dugout cell on the side of the mountain. And uh, they were put in this hubby confinement and told to... Um, uh, guards were placed there to guard them and a, a jailer to keep them that they couldn't escape. And at midnight, you remember what Paul and Silas were doing? They were singing. The Bible is full of these surprising accounts. If we just read them with new eyes, we would probably be a little startled sometimes when we read them. We're so comfortable, familiar with them, that we don't catch the, the irony of some of these conversations or the su surprise of some of these situations. Paul and Silas at midnight were singing. Now, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I kind of personally doubt that Paul and Silas had a habit on their mission trip of waking up every night at midnight and just singing. You know, that's just, I don't imagine that being the reality. The, the, what I imagine, and this is my imagination, so don't, don't take it as biblical truth, but my sanctified imagination has it such that they were in such pain they couldn't sleep. And rather than laying awake and moaning and groaning and becoming discouraged about the misfortune that had befallen them, they decided if they couldn't sleep, they might as well praise Jesus. And so they began singing, not your typical sounds that came from the cells in that prison, or any prison for that matter. And they're singing, and as they're singing, there's an earthquake. The, uh, again, I believe this earthquake is caused by none other than the angels coming closer to listen. And when angels want to walk heavy, they can walk heavy. And uh, the earth shook, and the doors of the prison came open and the chains fell off Paul and Silas and I suppose the other prisoners' arms. And the, the keeper of the, the prison came running and seeing all the doors open in the dark, not being able to see in these cells, assumed that the prisoners had fled. And so he's about to kill himself, knowing that he's going to be executed for his, his uh, betrayal of duties. When Paul cries out and he says with a loud voice, do, not, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. The jailer was astonished. What kind of men are still around after the jail the doors have come open and their chains have come off? After they've been beaten unjustly and suffered agony at the hands of their incarcerators and they're not holding resentment or wanting revenge, they're actually concerned about him. Did you catch that? The power of Paul and Silas' witness was not in the sermon they preached the day before. The power of their witness was that even in their hardships, they weren't thinking about themselves, they were thinking about somebody else. 
You see, our witness can never have the power God needs it to have if everything's just going smoothly in our lives. The power of our witness comes as we hold on to Jesus' hand through the tough times. And that's when people see Jesus in us. The jailer's astonished. They're still here. They're concerned about me. And he ran and got a light and returned to their cell and, and wanted to know what made them who they were. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And it's, the record uh, states that the jailer then took Paul and Silas to his own home. He bathed their wounds. They bathed their backs. And then it says, he, um, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. You see, they didn't delay, did they? They wanted. They wanted to be saved, and they wanted to be baptized. When he recognized the truth, the jailer followed it. You know, tonight I believe, or today I believe, that Jesus is still calling for men and women who want to give their hearts and their lives to Him. I really do. I believe that He's appealing to you and to me to commit our lives 2,000 years later to the Jesus, the Savior who died on the tree. And uh, the deacons have some cards they're going to hand out at this time. And I just want you to take some time to reflect on what your decision to Jesus would be today. You see, He's appealing to you to to join those like the Philippian jailer, those like Jesus who gave an example of baptism. And He gives you and me the same invitation that He gave to the Apostle, that the Apostle Paul gave to, uh, um, to the jailer. And why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Go ahead and... and uh, and hand those out this time. We're just going to take a brief moment. There may be some of you, I think most of you have already indicated your commitment to Jesus through baptism, but there may be some of you who haven't had that opportunity. And I never want to preach about baptism without letting that opportunity be had for those who may hear the voice of Jesus speaking to them uh, on this subject. And so, as you... As you um, as you get those cards and just pass them down to the end of the row, I want you to just read them carefully. We'll look at them together. And uh, once again, as you're thinking about this, it's, a, it's an important decision. It's a wonderful topic. It's a chance for us to start anew in our lives. And I want you to prayerfully consider your decision for Jesus today. And there's, there's a decision on that card for everyone here. No matter what your background, no matter what your experience, no matter what your walk with Jesus is. So, I would ask that you would ask Jesus today, Lord Jesus, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to check? Um, if you haven't been, if you haven't had the chance to follow his example in baptism by immersion, I'm quite sure he's convicting you today that you would be in his will for you to do that. Um, what are you waiting for? What would prevent you from committing publicly to Jesus? He died for us. Why, why would we not do anything that he has, he, would, he has asked? And so, 
Today, I, let's just go over this card very briefly. And the first, the first option says, I understand that Bible baptism is a willful public commitment to Jesus, being immersed under the water, symbolizing the burial of the old life, and being raised to begin a new life with Jesus. If you understand that, if that's clear from what we've seen in the Bible so far, I would invite you just to check uh, that box and to, um, to indicate the same. Um, the second box says, um, I've never been baptized in a biblical manner before, but I desire to so publicly confess my love and commitment for Jesus. I would like to prepare for baptism in the near future. If that describes you, then I would invite you to take advantage of this opportunity. Just check that box and, uh, and make that decision. Some of you may have been baptized before, but you've openly drifted from your walk with Jesus, and you've wandered from your representation of Him, and you too sense a need for a new start. And so we have the third option there. I've been baptized by immersion, but I've wandered from God's love. I desire to be rebaptized in a renewal of my covenant uh, to Jesus. And this isn't something that I urge upon anyone. It's up to an individual decision. If, they, if, they, if you are convicted that you want to renew your commitment to Jesus, then, then I'm sure very, one thing, Jesus accepts that renewal and Jesus will renew His covenant with you as well. The last option there is, I would like to recommit my life to Jesus again today. Our choice to follow Jesus is a daily choice, isn't it? To be born again of water and the Spirit is a, is a, is a choice that we make on a daily basis. And so, if you would like to recommit your life to Jesus today, I would invite you just to um, check that in your card as well. You feel free to leave your, your name and address, and um, if you would like, you can drop this card off as you exit the day. There will be ushers, uh, deacons by the door with a basket to collect them. Um, today is a, a special day God has brought us and given us an opportunity to make decisions for Him. Amen? Whether that's a commitment or a recommitment of our lives, Jesus invites us to make that decision and to renew that decision to live for Him and, uh, and with Him. And so today I just want to um, invite you as you think about this decision, what has Jesus done for you and what are you willing to do for Him? Father in heaven, that is the prayer of our hearts. We want to grow and draw nearer to Jesus. Whether it's for the first time that we're making a decision to accept You as our Savior, whether we've lived long lives as a Christian and we want to renew that commitment, our prayer is the same. Draw us nearer. Help us to come closer to Jesus today, this week, that others might see Jesus in us, that we might be instruments of His peace to share His message of His love and His saving power to the world around us. We thank You. We pray for those who have made decisions today. Um, we want, to, we want to lay these decisions at your feet. We renew our commitments to you today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse. 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.